At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day. Morning, Gospel Community Church. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Kurt McDonald. I'm the teaching pastor here, and I have the great privilege of uh, bringing to you God's holy, inspired, uh, and inerrant word. And today we start a brand new book. But before we get into Peter, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, listen to this. All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What this text means is the creator the sustainer of all things everywhere, God himself has spoken. He he has breathed out his word, and the men of old have written down that word, and God has preserved that word for us, and he's given it to us for teaching, for training, for reproof. Why? Because we need to be taught, rebuked sometimes. Amen? Anybody need to be rebuked? Sometimes. We need that. We need this word. God has breathed out this word, and it is for teaching, training, rebuke, and correction so that we can be equipped. Why? Because now we are ill-equipped. So we need God's word to equip us. And so all scripture is that way. And so it is God's word that we look to. It's God's word that we go to. Why? Because God's word is essentially a mirror that we hold up to ourselves, and it shows us who we are. So, because we believe that about God's Word, practically speaking, what that means for Gospel Community Church is that we preach through books of the Bible, okay? From from day one, from launch day seven years ago up until right now, we have preached through books of the Bible. Now, we do pause for short sermon series occasionally, but nine times out of ten, you will find us just preaching straight through books of the Bible, um, we, we do that because we believe the authority of God's word. And so there's, there's actually several reasons why we preach through books of the Bible. And it's very important that you as, uh, as a member or someone who's attending or even just visiting with us, it's important that you know why we preach through books of the Bible. And so here's why. Number one, it sets us up for a more comprehensive view <coughs> of the Bible. <coughs> Excuse me. Thanks, Ben. Ben always gets me water. (laughs) It sets us up for a more comprehensive view of the Bible, meaning if you skip around, it's more difficult to understand what the Bible is saying in its fullness. The the Bible is telling one story 
from Genesis to Revelation. That is the story of redemption. That is the story of God coming, God sending his son Jesus to die in our place for our sins. That's what the whole Bible is about. And and what can happen is if you're just skipping around, you can miss the fullness of what the actual text is trying to say. And so if I'm just preaching a message about a particular topic, it's easy to take my thoughts and my ideas and plug them into a particular text. But when you're preaching through a text, the fullness of the text the meaning of the text gets to speak for itself. Amen? Amen. And so we preach through books of the Bible because it sets us up for a more comprehensive view of the Bible too. It creates an environment of spiritual growth through study and conversation. Here's the good news. Today, we're not making it very far in 1 Peter. Okay, I'm just going to, the cat's out of the bag now. We're We're not getting very far in 1 Peter. But wherever we leave off, guess what, guess what I'm going to do next Sunday or, or whoever's preaching? They're, they're just going to pick right back up there. So you guys can go home. You can go buy commentaries on 1 Peter if you want to. You, be, you can begin to read 1 Peter, memorize 1 Peter, get that text down in your soul. You can discuss 1 Peter as a family in your homes. You can go to your community groups and begin to discuss 1 Peter. And again, let that text get down in your soul. Church family, it is my hope and my desire that you know the Bible for you. Amen. I I don't want to know the Bible for you. I want you to know the Bible. And so that's, that's a big reason of why we teach through books of the Bible and then why you go into your community groups and discuss the Bible is so that you become a person who can know, read, understand, and explain the Bible for yourself and not just rely on the pastor to spoon feed it to you. So We preach through books of the Bible because it creates an environment of spiritual growth uh, through study and conversation. Three, it saves the people from the theological, social, or philosophical tendencies of the pastor uh, or culture. So I have, listen, I have things that I want to talk about, okay? I I have topics that, that are my pet topics that I like to preach on and talk about. The culture wants to push us to think about certain things and talk about certain things. But when we say we are going to be a text-driven church, we do text-driven preaching or exegetical preaching. The, The word exegetical just means to lead out from, which means we go to the text and the text itself decides the topic. So, so Pastor Kirk isn't coming up with a topic. Uh, David Patton, when he preaches, he he doesn't come up with a, I think I'd like to teach. No, no. We go to the text. We read the text. We learn the text. And and, and then the text itself brings out the topic that we speak on for that particular Sunday. It guards you from me, and you need that. So, So I can't just come to you with my philosophies and my ideas. I must stick to the text. In the same way, like I said, the, the culture is, is constantly pulling us, pushing us, wanting us to talk about certain things, think about certain things. And we just want to say, the Bible speaks into the culture, but where the culture is wrong, the Bible's going to call that out. So it's very, very important. And lastly, fourthly, it's a visible act of submission to God's word by trusting in its sufficiency. We preach through books of the Bible because we believe that every single passage has something to speak to us. It's sufficient. It's enough. It's all we need. We just need God's word. Now, listen, that's difficult for me to believe sometimes. Who, who was here when we preached through 1 Samuel? Okay, like that. Do you guys remember Saul went to the witch at Endor and like, 
like brought Samuel back up from the dead. I mean, that was a doozy, right? That was, that was one of those ones where it's like, all right, Lord, I, I got to go up and preach this text and I don't know what it means. I don't know the application here, but God still spoke through that text. The text is sufficient. So by preaching through it, we're visibly showing that we believe God's word is all we need. It, the text is sufficient. And so for those reasons, and I could, I could go on and on for a lot more reasons, we preach through books of the Bible. And today, by God's grace, we get to begin this great book, 1 Peter. Now, why 1 Peter? There's, there's 66 of them in there, and I picked this one. We're, we're actually going to do 1 and 2 Peter. We'll be preaching um, through that. Well, I think every Christian and every church everywhere needs the message of 1 Peter. In particular, I believe GCC needs the message of 1 Peter. And here's why. I've summed it up in, in this way. 1 Peter is a message of hope because of our future glory at the coming of Christ. And though we currently find ourselves in times of suffering, there still can be joy in the heart of the believer. So I think that every Christian everywhere, every church everywhere needs the message of 1 Peter, but I think Gospel Community Church in particular needs a message of hope. Are, are there not those among us who are suffering? Are there not those among us who uh, even now are struggling with serious medical conditions? Do we have kids in, in the back at Gospel Kids that are struggling with serious medical conditions? Are there not those that are struggling and suffering in painful marriages? And are there not those among us who, who are feeling the pain of loss and grieving over a lost loved one? Are there, are there not those among us who are struggling with finances and just worried about whether or not ends are going to meet? And are there not those among us who have been abused in their past physically, mentally, sexually, I want to tell you, we are a suffering people. But there is great news in 1 Peter. The news in 1 Peter, what we're going to discover is a living hope. A living hope that though we are suffering, the, the message of 1 Peter is so contrary to the so-called prosperity gospel. The, the so-called prosperity gospel is if you just love God and follow him, you're going to be wealthy, healthy, and happy. And, th and that's so contrary to what 1 Peter says. 1 Peter says suffering is coming. Many of you are suffering, and if you're not, suffering is going to come. But in the midst of suffering, there can be a living hope, and there can be real joy, and it's found in Christ alone. And that's the message of 1 Peter. And so this book speaks to a people in the midst of their suffering, and it speaks of a living, a real living hope. So let's begin uh, our, our journey together through this great book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 1, first word, Peter. Let's stop right there. It's important that we start at the very beginning. I've heard that's a very good place to start. When, 
when the when it opens this way, it's a little bit different than how we write letters. So what we do is at the you know we write the whole letter you know sincerely yours, then you write your name at the very end. Well, that's not how they used to write letters, which is actually much smarter because you know if you get the letter, you got to flip all the way to the back see who. Anyway, he just writes it right up in the front, Peter. So we begin by discovering who the author is. Who is the author? Well, the author is Peter. It, it says so right there. This is Peter, uh, an apostle of Christ. And so we can know that Peter wrote First Peter because his name, he signed his name to it. And if that's not enough for you, the early church fathers and historians, Origen, Tertullian, and Eusebius also attribute this book to Simon, Simon Peter, the rock, the rock upon which the church was built, this, this man who was the leader of the disciples. And so let us paint a picture this morning of this man, Peter, of, of whom this, this great letter is penned. Who is, who is this man who, who writes this book? Well, if you remember, he was the one that was personally called by Christ to be his disciple. There, there he was on, on the shore of Gennesaret, and he was there with his business partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and they, they had their own little fishing business, and they were there. They had been fishing all night. They were exhausted. They were standing in the water, mending their nets. Here comes Jesus. He gets on one of their boats. He goes out. He preaches. He comes back to shore, and, and he says to them, hey, why don't you go cast your nets? And they're like, Look, you stick to the preaching thing, we'll do the fishing thing, okay? We fished all night, we didn't catch anything. And, and Jesus insists, no, go, go cast your nets. And so they, all right, <clears throat> Peter says, look, if that's what you want me to do, we'll, we'll do it. He gets in the boat, he goes out, and they haul in a catch so large that the boats begin to sink. Yeah. Peter responds by leaving his business, leaving his family, and just following Christ. He, he, just, he just leaves and begins to, to follow after him, to, to chase after him. This, he, he's, he's bold. He's, he's fearless, right? This is, this is this man, Peter. So he begins to uh, follow after, after Jesus. This is the guy who, after, after rowing and rowing in the middle of a storm, right? It's, it's storming out. They're in the middle of the, the, the lake, and Jesus comes walking on the water, out of the 12, this is the guy who says, hey, if it's really you, I want to get out there with you. Right? Okay, first off, every single one of us would be absolutely terrified. Uh, two, we would not ask to go out there. Like, that's awesome that you're out there. I'm staying in the boat. But Peter gets out of the boat. He begins to walk on water. Okay, like anybody, he begins to walk on top of something you're not supposed to be able to walk on top of. He begins to walk on water, but in the midst of him walking on water, he, it, the, the text says, and Peter saw the wind. He saw the storm, and he begins to freak out, and he starts to sink. Jesus walks over, grabs him, and picks him up and says, oh, you of little faith. What's so encouraging about just studying or thinking about Peter is He's, he's a flawed contradiction of a man. He, he's the one, the bold, brave, I'm going to jump out of this boat in the middle of a storm and walk on water. And in the midst of walking on water, like in this great act of faith, he loses his faith. In, in, in addition, this is, this is the same man who 
is the first one to acknowledge who Christ is. Jesus is there with his disciples, and, and he says, hey guys, who, who are people saying that I am? And the disciples are like, well, some, some people say that you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Some, some people are saying that, that you, you're the prophets of old. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ or the Messiah. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responds by saying, Simon, son of Jonah, or Simon bar Jonah, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. I mean, can you just get that scene in your mind? Peter's proclaiming, this is, you are the Christ, the son of God. And, And Jesus says, you nailed it. And God has shown this to you. And in the same chapter, A few verses later, Jesus is explaining to them, the Messiah must go, he must suffer at the hands of the leaders, and he must die. And and Peter loses his mind. What what are you talking about, Jesus? That doesn't make any sense. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs drive out the Roman overlords and they lead and rule the Jewish nation as a king. That's what Messiahs do. Messiahs don't die. You can't go to the cross. And Jesus turns around and says, get behind me, Satan. This man who makes the great proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, then has the nerve to rebuke Jesus. (laughs) Like, for the record, that's not a good idea. Rebuking Jesus is never a good idea. And and Peter, who has the faith and the foresight to, to see who this man is, the Messiah, is also the one who rebukes him for going down the path that he must go down. And do you remember that, that scene in the garden? Jesus is begging them to stay awake and pray with him. And there's Jesus in, in his time. If, if Jesus ever needed a friend, someone to be with him, it was right then in that moment as he's crying out to his father in agony and sweating drops of blood. And the one who is supposed to be the most devoted, the leader of the disciples is asleep. Now he's awakened by the troops that come marching in. The, the troops come marching in to arrest Jesus, and they, they had, you know, sticks and swords and torches, and, and all this, you know, rouses the disciples, and they wake up, and all of a sudden, he goes from not having the, the, the drive to just stay awake a few hours and pray with Jesus, okay, immediately to sword-wielding, I'm ready to kill for Jesus, They're not going to arrest my Lord. And he draws out his sword and the high priest's servant, his name is Malchus, is standing there. He draws out his sword and he goes, we think he he was like aiming to cut off the guy's head, but he misses and only cuts off his ear unless he was aiming for his ear. I don't, we don't know what was, if he was aiming for the ear, he was a really good shot. But if he was aiming for the head, he's terrible, but we don't know. But anyway, what happens is he, he's ready to kill for Christ and he jumps up and he swings and he cuts off the guy's ear and, and Jesus stops him, tells him to put away his sword. And then isn't it just a few hours later where he, he's so ready to kill for Christ, swinging a sword and 
there in the courtyard of the high priest. Don't, don't, you, don't you follow him? Don't you know him? Sword-wielding, shoot first, aim later, Peter. Stick your foot in your mouth, Peter. Don't you know him? No. Are you sure? No, I've never seen him. And, and again, you've got to get this picture in your mind. This is so key. Because in some of the depictions, it's like Jesus is way over there and, and you know, uh, Peter is way over here denying him. No, no, they're in the courtyard of the high priest. He, he is there with Jesus denying him to his face. And he denies him three times. If you're taking notes, Peter's past, like ours, is not filled with flawless victories, but with frequent failures. Frequently, this guy just drops the ball, (laughs) just fumbles it, just doesn't get it, doesn't understand. And on the other side of the coin, you see him doing these amazing things, leading the disciples, filled with faith, filled with passion. And he's a a flawed contradiction of a man. And I guess, think about it this way. Put, put yourself in the shoes of Jesus, and you have to pick a leader. Are you picking this guy? I mean, I'm, I'm just not. You know, he, he's a loose cannon, right? He, he, this is like bull in a china shop guy. You, you don't, you're, what Jesus was trying to do is communicate this message to, to this group of men, and he wanted them to go out and start the most massive movement called Christianity the world has ever known. You need a consistent leader, do you not? You need a consistent leader. And so at that point, if I'm Jesus, I'm going, it was, what tipped me over the edge was denying me three times in the courtyard. So I'm kind of out. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, where's John? Where's, you know, let me get one of the other guys. But that's not what Jesus does. As a matter of fact, after Jesus resurrects, Peter is so hopeless, which is very interesting because he writes this whole book on hope. Peter is so hopeless, he has no idea what to do. He says, I'm going back fishing. I'm going to go back to what I know. This, I mean, he, he was on this wild ride for three years, and Jesus has resurrected, and he's seen him resurrected, but Jesus is only kind of like showing up for a minute or two, hanging out with him, and then he disappears again. And Peter's like, I'm I'm going fishing, okay? He goes out and fishes all night again and catches nothing again. And Jesus, in his great wisdom, and Jesus, in his mercy, resets the scene the exact same way the day he called him. So he had fished all night again, caught nothing again. They're, they're mending their nets in the boat, right? Pulling the nets in. That was terrible, you know, just feeling defeated. And some guy from, from, from the shore, right? Some guy cries out, hey, children, did you catch any fish? You know, you, you can imagine them saying, you know, who's this geezer over here? Go away, you know. No, we didn't catch any fish. Throw the net on the other side. And again, they haul in so many fish that the boat almost sinks. 
And if you can see Peter in the boat, just get this picture in your mind. They're, they're pulling in all of these fish, and, and it's almost as if he goes, okay, wait a second, we fished all night, we didn't catch yeah. anything, uh, we're pulling the fish, there's a lot of fish here, that guy said, and then I remember, G- and the light bulb comes on. And what Peter does is so hilarious, right? You know, um, he doesn't wait for the boat to get to shore. That's Jesus. Come on, row quickly. What he does, it's kind of opposite from what we would do. But when, when they would get ready to work, what they would do is they would take off their outer, their outer garment. Um, the, the text says that he was stripped for work, meaning he had, his outer garment was, was off. What Peter does is he puts his outer garment back on, he dives into this. He, he's so impatient, so like, you know, just go get him. Get, he dives into the sea and swims to the shore to meet Jesus. And there Jesus has prepared a fire and has some bread. And he says, hey, get some of the fish that you guys caught. And he cooks them breakfast. And Jesus sits with them and, and is talking with them. And he turns to Peter. And, and in this great show of compassion and love and mercy. He says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? He says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he asks him again, and he asks him a third time. And the the text says basically that Peter was heartbroken that Christ had asked him a third time. Again, this, this man who loved, genuinely loved Jesus so much, but was flawed and broken and failed so many times. And he says, yes, Lord, you, you know, you know that I love you. And, and Jesus reinstates him, brings him back into the fold. Though he was flawed, though he had failed, though he had totally dropped the ball, he, he still, Jesus still welcomes him in with open arms, brings him back into the fold. And on that great day of Pentecost, the, the tongues of fire resting over their heads, and it's Peter, Peter, the reinstated, reinvigorated Peter, the, the leader of the disciples that goes out and he preaches this sermon, this powerful sermon. You've got to go back in Acts and read the sermon. It's so powerful. He preaches this powerful sermon. And 3,000 people get saved in that moment. He goes out and begins to plant churches all over, and, and he is the mighty leader of the disciples. And even still, after his reinstatement, after his powerful preaching, after 3,000 people getting saved, after pastoring churches, after planting churches, he is still a flawed man. Go read Galatians. <laughs> there's, this, there's this story in Galatians where the Apostle Paul goes to Peter, and, and the Apostle Paul says, I opposed Peter to his face because, uh, here's the scene, here's what was happening. Peter was, was you know, a Jewish guy, and he was eating with Gentiles, right, non, non-Jews, but some, some really uh, like bigwig Jewish people came into town, and he decided he didn't want to eat with them anymore because the Jewish bigwigs had come into town. Oh, yeah. And, and, and Pe- that, that's, that's racism. That's contrary to the gospel. Jesus came to break down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles here in the South, between blacks and whites. Uh, Jesus came to break down the dividing wall between races and to create one new man, one new race. And so Paul opposes Peter to his face and, and calls him out for it. This is contrary, what you're, how you're acting is contrary to the gospel. 
So even after all of that, Peter was still a broken and flawed man. Yet, yet the beauty of this is that he is still used by God. If you're taking notes, the usefulness of a Christian is not based on their faithfulness or abilities, but upon the grace and the power of God. The usefulness of a Christian. If you're here and you say, there's no way God can use me. I've blown it too many times. I've messed up too many times. I've fumbled the ball too many times. I've tried to like, you know, I'm going to get back in church. I'm going to start reading my Bible. And three months later, you find yourself in that same exact spot. If you think you have blown it too much and, and you can't be used by God, you are absolutely incorrect. You're basing your usefulness upon your faithfulness and upon your abilities. And it's not based on that at all. It's based upon the mercy, the grace, and the power of God to use broken people to accomplish his will. This is the power of the God we serve. You see, every time Peter fumbled the ball, God was using that to make him a better leader. Every time Peter shot off his mouth, he was using that to make him a better preacher. Every time God was taking all of that to make him a better pastor, to make him a better leader. That's how powerful God is. He can use our mistakes to make us better. Again, if you're taking notes, God loves to turn our stumbling blocks into stepping stones. God loves to take our, our stumbling blocks and turn them into stepping stones that, that move us forward, that grow us up. It's like, man, I've, I've got this addiction. God knows. Yeah, but my, my marriage is, oh, it's, God knows that. Yes, but, but you don't understand because, you see, in my past, this thing happened to me. And it is, yeah, yes, and God wants to use that for his glory and your good. Yeah. And so the things that we see in our lives that are stumbling blocks to us, God's saying, yeah, and I'm going to use that so that you can move forward. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that, that broken piece in you. That's what I'm going to use. And it, and it is this man, this broken man, this flawless contradiction of a man who gives us this great letter, who pens this great letter, this message of hope, this man who saw his flaws, knew he was broken, and, and in his desperate search for hope, a living hope, found it in Christ alone and pens this great letter so that we might have it. So uh, we know uh, from church history, this book was written in the mid-60s. It's around 60 A.D., we know that because in 64 AD, Rome burned. Um, some, some historians actually say that the emperor himself, Nero, w was responsible for setting the fires that burned Rome, basically because he wanted to rebuild it more beautifully and make more statues of himself. But what happened as the result of Rome burning was they decided to blame the Christians. The Christians have done this. And what begins in 64 AD is, go back and read your church history. It, it is a, just an onslaught of persecution on the church. Christians are beaten, they're flogged, they're whipped, they're tied and sewn in the skins of animals and thrown to the lions. They're burned. N Nero actually had many Christians impaled he would then wrap them in pitch and resin and light them on fire to set and bring light to his garden parties. And it was in this time of persecution when Peter died. So, so we, we know that 
the, the, these books here had to be written at least before 64 AD because it was in that persecution in Rome uh, that Peter died. And as a matter of fact, church history tells us that this faithless man who had denied Christ so that he wouldn't die actually confirms Christ and is killed. And church history records the way that Peter is killed. He's crucified. But Peter refused to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord, and he demands that they crucify him upside down. This is recorded for us by Eusebius, who is writing in 325 AD, says this, Peter seems to have preached to the Jews from the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Bithynia, Cappadocia and Asia, and to the end he came to Rome and was crucified, listen to this, head downward, for so he demanded to suffer. So our time is almost gone, and we've got through one word, um, <laughs> Peter. L- let us seek to continue on. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle, an apostle. Um, here it's referring to a specific office. Um, in order to be an apostle, a capital A official apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ and be placed in this specific office by Christ himself. So what, what Peter does is he opens up this great letter by um, telling us his name and essentially his title, Peter, an apostle of Christ. And then he gives us another title and a people to whom he is writing, a title and a people to whom he is writing. So we have people, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are, here's their title, elect exiles. That's who they are. Elect exiles, that's their title, of the dispersion. Elect exiles of the dispersion. Okay? Peter, <laughs> Peter opens up this great and glorious letter by addressing his hearers as those whom God has chosen. He wants to write out of the gate, hello, elect, hello, chosen ones, hello, ones who are loved by God. He desperately wants them to know that God was the deciding factor in their salvation. He wants them to know that God, before the foundations of the earth, had predestined them for salvation, that he was going to love them, that God was going to chase after them, that they were going to be rebellious and stiff arm him and want to go their own way and do their own thing, but God was going to relentlessly pursue them in grace, love, and mercy. He was going to pour out his spirit upon Upon them, he was going to take their hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. He was going to breathe the breath of life into their corpse bodies. Um, he was going to make them alive again because he had chosen them and elected them. Yeah. That is what Peter wanted them to know right out of the gate. You see, we, we, we have this doctrine of election or predestination in the church, and it's very controversial doctrine. A lot of people don't want to talk about it, and we prefer to leave it in the back of the theology book, and maybe we'll get to it at some point. Peter comes right out of the gate with it. Apparently, uh, nobody told Peter this was a controversial doctrine, and you're not supposed to talk about it. He just says, 
Hello, ones chosen by God. Hello, elect ones. Hello, predestined ones before the foundation of the earth that, that the lamb would be slain for you. He calls them elect. Not only does he call them elect, but he refers to them as exiles. What, do, what does he mean? And, and aren't those two ideas contradictory? If you are chosen, why are you exiled? He calls them elect exiles. Well, what is an exile? Let's begin there. An exile is, is a temporary resident in a foreign land. That's what an exile is, a temporary resident in a foreign land. So he's writing to foreigners. He's writing to out-of-towners. He's writing to outsiders, meaning they don't belong, meaning they are resident aliens, or uh, an older word, they are sojourners, travelers, because they are not in their own home. So is that to say that no one in any of the churches, that is the churches that are in Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, is that to say that no one in any of those churches that he's writing to are natives, natives of that land? Um, were none of them born and raised in those particular places? Well, no, some were natives. So the, so the question is, what are they exiled from then? Yeah. What are they exiled from? M meaning, what is their true home? Are you following me? You tracking with me? He, he, what is, their true home is heaven. That's why he calls them exiles. They're exiled from heaven. They're, their true home, where they're supposed to be going. So church family, that means to us this morning that we are sojourners. We are travelers on our way to our true home, our forever home. That's why the old hymn says, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Church family, if you're taking notes, Christians are exiles in this world because we have a different king, live for a different kingdom, and are therefore have different values. Yes. So to be described or called an exile, here's what that means. An ex you're an exile, a sojourner. What that means is, so j just think about a person who's an ambassador. They're going into the world and representing another king because they have another king. They, they live and work for essentially a different kingdom, and therefore that person has different values. That's why if you've ever been to a different country um, or been to, been to somewhere far away, you kind of walk around and those people, they do things weird, they talk weird, they don't, they don't have a good southern accent like everybody should. Um, you know, so why do they do those things differently? Well, because they have different values. They serve a different king. And so as Christians in the world, that's why we oftentimes feel out of place and weird yeah. because we have a different king. We're working and living for a different kingdom and therefore our, our values are inherently different. Here's what I mean. If you live out the Christian life, it's going to be uncomfortable here. Yeah. Meaning this, church family, listen to me very closely. It's a rejection of the so-called American dream. What, it, what, is the, what is the American dream? Well, I'm describing it as this. First, the American dream is to follow your dreams. Follow your dreams, make money, and listen, and if it's a rag to riches story, we like that even better, okay? So, so follow your dreams, make money, retire early, and be comfortable, okay? Follow your dreams, 
make money, retire early, and be comfortable. This, this is the American dream. This is what you're supposed to be doing. This is, what, this is the king that you're supposed to worship. This is the kingdom that you're supposed to be for. And these are the values that you are supposed to inherit. But Matthew 16, 25, 24 through 25 says this, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Do you know how countercultural that is? to deny yourself, to live selflessly, to give away, to be for others instead of for yourself. This is so contrary to the so-called American dream. If, if Jesus says, he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, his cross, the, the instrument of death and torture is what Jesus is saying you should take up. And follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Listen, I'm not saying Christians can't be patriotic. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is our culture is handing you values, giving you values. Follow this, be this. And as Christians, we are exiles. We're weirdos. We're strangers. We're sojourners. We're travelers because we're rejecting that and saying, no, I want to live for others. I want to be for others. Primarily, I want to be for Christ, live for him, build his kingdom, not my own. And I want to give myself away to other people. I want to give my possessions and my life away to other people because I'm, I'm learning and I'm thinking about this great kingdom that is to come. If this life is all there is, then it makes sense to build the biggest kingdom for yourself here. But if there is another kingdom to come, then that doesn't make any sense. So as Christians, as travelers, as exiles, as sojourners, we're saying we reject that idea of materialism and we adopt the idea that there's a greater kingdom to come. Think about this, church family. When Jesus returns, what do you get? The kingdom. You get it all. Everything that is Jesus's is yours. And so it becomes silly to try to accumulate stuff and live for yourself when you know that when Jesus returns, you get the kingdom. You get all of it. So that's why we're weird. That's why we're strange. That's why... When we begin to communicate these values, it sounds like people look at you like a dog that heard a high-pitched whistle. They're like, hmm? When you communicate values such as, no, I mean, how we structure our marriages, our marriage isn't about us. The Bible tells us that we should lay our lives down for our spouse, that we put our spouse ahead of ourselves. Marriage isn't about meeting my needs. It's about giving myself away to my spouse. So I do everything that I can to serve my spouse. People are like, what? We say, no, we, we raise our children to um, practice first-time obedience. We believe that children should be obedient. Children should do what? <laughs> we let our kids essentially run our house and our lives. Why do you? No, I, I don't think that that's a, a good way to live because I don't think that there'll be fullness in accumulating a lot of stuff. Or um, I, I, We think it's kind of weird that you would, just keep going further and further into debt because you're just buying stuff to impress people you don't even really like. So, um, so when we communicate these values, we sound strange because we are, we are absolutely exiles. Here's what I'm saying. If you live like you have a different king and you live for a different kingdom and therefore have different values, it's going to make other people uncomfortable because what you are doing and saying becomes an indictment on them. That's, that's why 
it makes people uncomfortable. Because it, it just by the way that you live is an indictment on them. It says the way that they live and do things is wrong, and people don't like to be told they're wrong. Uh, just write that down if you didn't know that. <laughs> so he calls them elect exiles of the dispersion. The dispersion, what does that mean? Well, it, it means they're dispersed, they're scattered, they're spread out. Now, in the Old Testament... Um, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know that the, the Jewish people were dispersed. They were scattered. They were scattered because of their disobedience. They had been given a promised land, yet they did not follow God. They did not love, love God. They did not serve God. And therefore, he punished them and scattered them away from and out from the promised land. So the question, if that's our biblical understanding of the dispersion, are these people then dispersed because they were also disobedient? Well, we would answer no, because all punishment, this is the New Testament, a new covenant, all punishment um, that comes from disobedience was laid on Christ on the cross. So now we have to think even deeper and say, okay, well, then why were they dispersed? You know, what, what is the deal with this dispersion. Well, we Christians are scattered where we are so that we might be light and show love and mercy and goodness and kindness. This is a part of the, uh, what theologians refer to the already not yet of the kingdom, as God's kingdom is going to continue to expand and grow and cover the whole earth where Jesus in the end times will rule and reign fully and completely unopposed What's happening now is God is dispersing Christians all throughout the world so that we might be ambassadors bringing light and hope to the world as his, king, as his kingdom representatives. He is dispersing us. And so um, out of Jerusalem, what happened is um, Christians were dispersed because of persecution on the church, and they went all throughout Rome and into Europe and eventually got on boats and came over here. And here we are today, and Christianity is still growing and expanding. They were, they were dispersed to be light and, and hope to the world as people bringing this great gospel news. And so Peter opens and begins this great letter by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Well, church family, that's about as far as we'll get today. I, I want to say this, though. For those of us who are suffering, this book holds out hope to us. It holds out hope to us. And so I'm eager, very eager for the next several weeks as we study this book together and we see the text put on display and hold out for us hope, the hope that our souls long for. I, I encourage you to take this text and begin to read it, begin to memorize it, begin to let it settle into your soul because it's what you are searching for. It's what your heart is really longing for. It is being held out here. And so I'll just, I'll close this way. I just, I just want to read verses 1 through 12, and I just want us to hear it together. Maybe if, if you want to, you don't have to, but maybe even just close your eyes and listen to it, or, or you can follow along on the screen and look at however you want to. But I just want us to, even now, at the, at the start, at the beginning of this series through the book of 1 Peter, let us just begin to drink in this text and let it settle deep down into our souls. 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, in Galatia, and Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power and being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though not for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy in the inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about that grace do it to be yours. Search and inquire carefully, inquiring what person or time and spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It is revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven into which angels long to look. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this great letter, this great word and message of hope, this message of hope to hopeless people, to people who are grasping in the dark, searching for you. You have shown light into the dark. You have given hope to the hopeless and life to the lifeless. And we praise you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for sending your spirit and mighty power to uh, speak to Peter so that he might write down these great words to us. We thank you for preserving it throughout church history that we might have it, be able to know it. And Lord, I just pray over the next several weeks as we study this book together that you would write these words on our souls. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.